0: Hey, my name is Paulina and I did my Erasmus year in Germany. I did not know a lot of German, so I had to learn survival skills pretty quick and um, one of the first things i learned was that when you go shopping in the store they tell you they ask you a lot of um, small questions at the end when you're paying and they usually are the same questions do you need a bag do you want your receipt or maybe do you want this particular promotion so i learned that even if i didn't understand what they were saying i usually always replied no to these questions right it took me about two months to realize that i had been replying no to most of the questions, but also, at the end, in the supermarkets or shops, they would always say, well, have a nice day, and I would reply, no, and leave. Oh, boy, oh, boy, do I ever sympathize with Paulina. Learning a language is hard, and adopting to a new country is hard, too. And you mix them both together, and everything feels, you guessed it, hard. Hard. Now, I remember being in France and calling my landlord to tell him that I needed to know where the fuse box was. I could only remember a friend saying that he had blown a fuse because he was so angry. In French, to blow a fuse is literally to fart a wire or péter un câble. I knew that I hadn't blown a wire, so I guessed at the word for fuse and I opted for "fusil. The landlord was more than a little concerned to hear that his tenant had just farted a rifle. The silence on the phone was deadening. Now, if you can imagine all of the stuff that can go wrong when you're trying to just change a fuse or buy some food at the supermarket when you're doing it in a different country, imagine how hard it would be to scale a rapidly growing business by opening offices around the world. Today's guest, Jitu Matani, EVP of customer success at HubSpot did that and with surprisingly few cultural blunders along the way. This story is quite something and I can't wait to share it with you. This is Inflection Point and I'm Mark Thomas.
1: I come from a family of uh, entrepreneurs, pretty much uh, business owners who have uh, had to migrate from one country to the other country for multiple reasons. And uh, that's sort of like part of my DNA and blood is how do I keep building, keep building something new? You're listening to Two
0: Matani there. He grew up in India, in Bangalore, actually. But really, he
1: traveled around a lot. We're just a family that has grown up across multiple countries, languages, cultures. My ancestors lived uh, in the uh, Sindh province of uh, Pakistan. So during the uh, independence uh, back in the uh, 1940s, uh, my ancestors basically crossed the border from Pakistan to India because we're Hindus and uh, We were like, well, which direction do we go? And we were like, we're not too sure. We can go north or we can go south. So some decided to move north. And, you know, some, which included my great grandparents, moved south. And we ended up in a city called Bangalore, which is where most of my childhood was spent. And uh, the cousins who ended up moving north continued moving north. And uh, many of them now live in Hong Kong where I also spent some part of my childhood, but that's sort of like what happened in the uh, early days uh, with the family in terms of like why we had to migrate and how we ended up in uh, southern India and in in a city called Bangalore.
0: But it didn't just stop in Bangalore. In fact, the list of places where G2 lived as a child is seemingly endless. And I'm telling you this because I want you to know in advance. This is a man who knows what it's like to accomplish things in a new country or language.
1: Eventually we got bounced around between uh, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Egypt. The story uh, behind the bouncing around is basically my dad is uh, a merchant. He gets products and goods manufactured in uh, China and then exports it into different parts of the world. In
0: 2009, G2 was working as a sales rep in HubSpot in Boston. When he joined the company, it was three years old. And thinking about it, marketing was significantly different then. HubSpot was leading the way on inbound marketing. But at this point, it was reps like G2 who were doing the actual growth work. They were hit in the phones, calling inbound leads as they came in through the HubSpot site and trying to build the business brick by brick. And that's when G2 noticed something strange was happening.
1: In early days, like I started with HubSpot as a sales rep and, uh, you know, what you would call like a quota carrying sales rep. I carried uh, a target and about two, two and a half years into it, uh, I noticed that we were getting a bunch of demand from uh, the UK. We were getting these really good fit companies coming through inbound. And I went to my CEO, Brian Halligan. Now Brian, I was like, what do you want to do about this demand? And he was like, well, it's up to you. You can start calling into them and uh, you're in sales. You get to, uh, you know, keep the commission of selling into the UK. But I was like, well, they are a different time zone. And he's like, well, you figure it out. So I started showing up in the office at uh, 4 a.m., started calling into the UK, ended up like hiring a couple of uh, reps in our Cambridge, Massachusetts office. And all those reps were young dads in those days. Because they wanted to show up in the office at four and leave the office at two so they can pick up their kids. But, that, you know, long story short, that was sort of like the early days on how we got uh, some early uh, insight on, like, wow, this is a potentially big market for us. And we made this decision to open Dublin in uh, January 2013. Hey, my name is Diane Vukovic. I was spending the night at my boyfriend's place in Serbia and got up to go to the bathroom. It was completely dark in the apartment and I couldn't see anything. So, on my way back, I jokingly called out, Marco. An American would know to respond by calling out, Polo. Well, my boyfriend was not American. He was also not named Marco. Marco actually a really popular name in the Balkans. Basically, I just called out the wrong guy's name in the bedroom. Luckily, my boyfriend understood and thought it was funny. We've been married five years now, but I'm definitely not going to play Marco Polo with him again.
0: We're in 2021 now, and everything feels a lot different to how it did in 2012, when G2 and the team at HubSpot were considering what to do to service all the demand that they were seeing from the UK. The reps in Cambridge, Mass, had been up at 4am calling people in Cambridge, UK, long enough to know there's significant demand in the UK, and that means that we should dedicate significant resource to building the market there. And so G2 got the go-ahead to look into how that would work practically.
1: One difficulty that I think many companies will face or will have to think about when opening an international operation is, well, do you open an office directly or do you be more partner-centric and you go to market with a channel strategy? Uh, or do you just simply, you know, not offer like human phone-based support and do this completely product-driven and not open at office? For us, that question was simply like in those days, we knew we had to get a big chunk of our future revenue coming from outside the U.S. And uh, the early days of selling at 4 a.m. from Cambridge indicated our partners in the U.K. were doing well. The reps were doing, you know, upwards of 120, 125% of their attainment. So the market was pulling us in. We had to decide, do we open London, Dublin, Amsterdam? We went through a whole due diligence process. And uh, it wasn't super scientific in those days, but reasonably, uh, you know, math and uh, quantitative, whereby we would look at talent, compensation, real estate, labor laws, uh, access to multilingual talent that will enable us to build a hub and access the rest of like the other geographies in Europe. So that was, you know, one of the first uh, big, tricky questions we had to answer because it was our first office. And I suspect many folks would go through the same process. It's like if it's your first non-US office or your first international office, you want to get that right because when you get that right, it creates like a lot of great momentum for future offices and future growth.
0: If you've ever looked into HubSpot's offices around the world and for this episode I definitely have you'll know that in the end the team decided that Dublin would be a good first move as a city Dublin is full of tech talent as well as in my experience extremely friendly people that's a definite bonus in sales as well as being a doorway to the European Union and looking back on it now This seems like an eminently foresighted choice given the uk's decision to close itself off from the world in 2016 by leaving the european union but at that time there was still a huge challenge for the hubspot team to overcome how do you even go about building an office in a different country while simultaneously changing the marketing industry forever It's not the same as opening a factory that makes a well-recognized product that anyone can pick up and just make. The team at HubSpot were creating a culture based around an entirely new category. Here's what G2 had to say.
1: One of the things with employee culture is like, if you don't get it right, it takes you back or behind by maybe, at least from my side, it takes you back by maybe two years. Uh, it's just really hard to, like, rebuild when you don't have, like, the right values, the right principles and the right culture. And on HubSpot side, what we decided is, like, you know, we're, you know, reasonably well known from our culture standpoint. It's something that we are fairly proud of in terms of, like, the culture we've been able to build with our talent. Uh, Dharmasha has written, uh, my co-founder, has written uh, our culture code. So what we decided, Mark, is like we were going to obsess about culture from day one when we opened the office. So we sent five expats, including me, to Dublin. We hired uh, four or five local uh, HubSpotters in uh, Dublin, in Ireland. And we did this interesting thing whereby like every local hire had an expat that they were buddied up with. Now that's expense. But we decided we were okay making that investment because if those first five got the culture right, they were successful. Hi, this is Chef Carl Wilder. Several years ago, when I was working in the Dominican Republic, I had some challenges with the language. You're italiano, italiano, similar. So we were medici to communicate for the most part until one morning I asked my sous chef to get into the macanata, macina, and macina, pranto, pranto, pranto. And he was giving me terrified looks. I finally took his hand and said, macina, pranto. And he recoiled as if I was going right to hurt him very badly. The dishwasher, who spoke some English, came over and Pointed to the garage and said, ow, Pointed to the food processor and said, Matina. So uh, the poor kid thought I was going to put Santa in the food processor.
0: Spoiler alert! <clears throat> the team at HubSpot made a good bet. The bet that they had about partnering experts with local hires really paid off. And sales of HubSpot grew significantly. Now, if you can imagine, Dublin had gone well. A local team working from a local office had proven the minimum viable product. That was that HubSpot can be sold better internationally from local offices than it can be from reps based in Boston. Like many executives, though, once the main thesis that G2 had was proven, his job became more about working out how to grow the investment versus how to acquire new customers specifically. And if we think of HubSpot's growth in terms of inflection points, this story saw its first one when G2 decided to start calling UK companies from the HubSpot HQ. The second one, when he managed to open an office in Dublin. And the third one, when he multiplied that revenue growth by opening a series of offices in phases. Phase one was Dublin, Berlin, and Sydney. Phase two was Tokyo, Paris, and Singapore. Phase three, Bogota in Colombia.
1: Obviously, the world is a massive, uh, massive place, and you could play anywhere from Europe to Japan to Australia to Latin America. And if you don't pick the place where you want to play right, it's going to be a a hard battle to win. And uh, when you don't win in those early innings, you know, you just don't get that momentum, as I mentioned, to like keep making those you know, growing investment, so picking the right place. And, uh, it's a lot to do with go to market is what countries do you want to focus on the role I took on is, you know, what we call like the managing director for international and, uh, the way I typically frame it is like, it's 80%, like your core role, and then 20% on, uh, offices, uh, culture, and all the other things outside your core role i it's a lot, it's a lot. And, you know, but we had uh, that investment, as I mentioned, like we had a small group of expats that moved with me and uh, who played uh, a fairly big role. And this is where, you know, back to like, if I didn't have the backing of like the company truly committing to it. So, you know, we had a team on the culture side. We had a team on the uh, people operations side who were all, you know, based in the U.S. but who were closely working with my team and me to, uh, to get the job done and to grow up. Uh, in Dublin and internationally. So this is where, you know, it's a bit of a balancing act whereby we're just generally, we made sure we were thoughtful with like, yep, hit your goals, but every month, every quarter, let's review like what we set out to hit and uh, how did we do against it. we will also add uh, some of the challenges were made uh, a bit easier because it's not a pure sales role There's sales, there's go to market, there's you know, future expansion, this people culture. We've
0: talked about this before on Inflection Point, but doing anything meaningful in growth and marketing is like playing problem-solving whack-a-mole. You knock one problem down and a whole new set of challenges crop up. And expanding to every market, as the team have done aggressively over the past 10 years,
1: brings a new set of problems too. The assumption we made in Japan when entering Japan is we can basically do really well with our English content or just our English content localized without like much native content. And that was a really strong lesson. Like when you do business in certain countries, like you really need to think locally. And uh, we had to do a bunch of things to be truly seen as a local player, as opposed to a company you know, open an office, translated all its content into Japanese and hoping to be seen as a local player. And that didn't really work out really well during those early days. I hope you're getting this now,
0: but the reason that I'm sharing a bunch of funny stories from people who have nothing to do with HubSpot, having language difficulties in this episode, is because this stuff, and I mean living and working in a country that's not your own, is hard. You make a bunch of assumptions about the way things should be done or are done or could be done. And often they turn out to be pretty wrong.
1: When we opened our uh, go-to-market to to, uh, Germany, we did quite well. Yes, there was a bunch of work that had to happen on the marketing side, but our German demand, about 50% of it, was coming through our English blog. So we were like, that's great. Maybe that assumption should hold true in Japan. But that was the incorrect assumption as mentioned. And uh, what we ended up doing in Japan is like, while wow, we launched the office. And then we realized like, okay, what we're going to really need to do is create more native content. Because a lot of the content that we localized while it was getting found, it wasn't speaking to the persona in Japan. So the conversion of traffic to leads was uh, on the lower end. So that was a big one in terms of like, in terms of inbound and content is to find that balance between uh, what do you like translate versus what do you truly create from a native standpoint? We have this framework that we use now to decide like what gets centrally translated versus what gets, you know, in region uh, created from a native standpoint. The other one is just the way of doing business. And uh, we didn't make an assumption on this one. We knew that we were going to have to do something different here is events are big in uh, Japan in general. And of course, like during these times, that's not true, but I'm sure it'll make a comeback, but prospects and including like our buyers, like marketers, uh, sales leaders, they like to go to events. They like to go, whether it's virtual or even in person. They want to, like, meet the companies uh, in person. And I think this has to do a little bit with uh, the culture is, like, you got to, like, make sure this person is truly committed to the Japan market, isn't, like, you know, doing a one-person operation. So, this back to, like, just simply the way relationships are built in Japan are different from other countries.
2: Hi there. I'm Jerome when i was 16 teenager in france i decided it was a good idea to get a pen print to improve my english um, so i registered with a company and i got paired with a girl my age in kentucky um, so everything goes well she sends me her first letter and uh, yeah letter remember it's the early 2000s right so we still send letters. So in her letters she tells me everything about her life, her boyfriend, her favorite film, her favorite music, etc. So obviously I responded um, and I told her everything I thought was important about me, interesting, and I did tell her about my favorite film at the time. So I said, it's the early 2000s and it's quite a famous film that's been uh, released uh, that's called crew Intention The problem is if you know anything about France you know that we love to dub everything but also we tend to change titles and it makes sense if you just change it into French but it doesn't if you just change it into English at all and for some reason that film became Sex Intention so I wrote to that girl from one of the most conservative states in the States about the fact that my favorite film was Sex Intention. And, and I never got a letter back. And I didn't understand why until I moved to the UK and found out the name of that film was Raw Intention. And then I realized that I really hit all the stereotypes of the French guy.
0: Yikes. I know Jerome well. And if you're listening, And you were triggered by that because you're Jerome's disgusted pen friend in Kentucky. I'd like to just tell you, Jerome grew up to be a lovely person, even if his favorite film is Cruel Intentions, which happens to be a pretty awful film. Now, one thing that interests me about G2's story, and actually about a lot of stories that I hear while making this show, is what it felt like when these inflection points were happening. I've never been part of a company that grows from $30 million to a billion dollars in under 10 years. And I bet only a handful of people listening to this podcast have had that experience. But I really have no concept of the feelings that that must inspire. And G2's story is particularly special also. Because while you might have heard of HubSpot and you think you know a lot about how it grew... You probably haven't heard about G2's role in building the system that generates 40% of the company's
1: annual revenue. On the revenue side, probably 30 million when we opened you know, HubSpot uh, a few months ago, Should we're over a billion in uh, annual recurring revenue. So pretty uh, significant growth, still growing at about 40%, both uh, domestically and 40% uh international world, 40% globally and 40% internationally. On the international side, that uh five million when we opened, you can think of ballpark like somewhere between 40 to 42% of our global revenue now comes from outside uh, North America. So fairly sizable, one of the few uh US headquartered SaaS companies that is generating forty percent from uh you know, outside the U.S. on that uh, total billion plus. As G2
0: was reeling off these numbers that seemed just so far into me, you know, almost inquantifiable, I was left thinking, but what does this feel like to you? How does it feel to know that you're one of the main reasons that HubSpot pulled
1: off this wild growth?
0: And although G2 is one of the most humble people I've ever
1: interviewed, here's what he answered. Well, I don't want to boast or anything, but, you know, it feels like it goes back to my values, which was like, I want to be in situations where, you know, I'm building and meeting other cultures and the return, the risk return profile is like compelling if you get the, uh, get the play right. I think it just started with my uh, childhood days whereby you're just put in these situations where you're given a bit of the unknown like you know different languages different cultures new cities and i think one of the things that has ingrained in me is uh, the ability to uh, adapt and uh the ability to be okay in situations that maybe some folks might find chaotic but i'm like that's okay because uh there's nothing that can go like wrong like yep yeah, you're probably going to need to work harder to make uh, friends make connections like get your way around uh sort of like the setting you're put into but i feel like it's been an important element of uh, how i've had to just live and it's shown up in uh, my work and my interactions with people uh, at work and also outside work i think we're still honestly in the first innings and some days i'm like wow like our addressable market is getting bigger because each time we release a product, each time we open an office, you get access to more addressable market. So I still tell my team that we're still in the first innings of what I think could be a, a fairly significant business over the next many years.
0: What G2 accomplished is really quite significant. HubSpot's a huge company now, but when he joined, it was a small one. And since 2012, G2 has been a driving force in the growth of the organization, and yet has remained a humble, empathetic person who has a genuine curiosity about the world. But more than that, he has a very meaningful relationship with uncertainty. And it's really that, which, as we just heard, stretches back to those formative days of moving around the world, which HubSpot gained when they hired him. Now that they're 10 years into their international expansion efforts, there are a lot of things that are no longer uncertain. They have a proven model for growing revenue by expanding into new territories. Now the opening phrase of the book, The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley reads, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. But I'd like to add, so is the future, and we know how good G2 is in a new country. I'll see you next time. So, if you enjoyed that today and you want to do something about your B2B SaaS marketing, you should get in touch with us. You can do that by going to poweredbysearch.com and checking out our work with us page, or you can browse the case studies and blogs that we have on the site. Now, if you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can ping me on Twitter. I'm at i am mark thomas. That's mark with a c. Or you can ping our founder and CEO Dev Basu. D E V B A S U. Connect with us there. Looking forward to seeing you again for another episode.